So it's July 14, 1970, and news has spread through the city of Reggio that it's losing its status as the capital of the southern region of Calabria. People start to assemble, and city officials declare a general strike. Gatherings start to grow into big rallies, and a mass march spills out into the streets. The mayor gets involved, delivering an impassioned speech to the protest. In the evening, a thousand people take over the train station and the airport. Clashes with the police leave dozens injured, sparking a chain reaction the next day. Blockades, shutdowns, barricades. The city's in full revolt. The reformist left-wing parties bow out, feeling the growing intensity of localist and populist rebelling and turning against them. And soon, their own headquarters become targets. More fights with cops, and then, in the evening, a middle-aged worker is killed in the mix. This is the story of the Reggio Revolt, an incendiary event in Italian history that shook the entire country and transformed the political dynamics of Italy, pitting the right against the left and thrusting the mafia of the southern region of Calabria into the chaos and crisis of political violence that would become known as the Years of Lead. We're here with Danny Gold. Journalist extraordinaire, been all over the world reporting on the underworld, <laughs> and uh, uh, he's here to join us on this episode about the Calabrian mob. Sorry, that was terrible. No, it's fine, man. You got a great podcast voice. Uh, yeah, Underworld <laughs> Podcast is where you can find me usually talking about subjects along these lines, but uh, this looks super well researched and well put together, so it's probably a step up from what we do, but either way, excited to be here. All right, all right, all right. Let me start. I'm going to start out with a quick summary of why the Reggio Revolt was important, and then I'll get into some of the history before we get into the actual thing itself. In a sense, the Reggio Revolt represents all of Italy, its political and regional divisions, along with the pull towards a populist opposition to the bureaucracy and party rule that constituted what they called a blocked democracy. At the turn of the 1970s, it manifested the anger and resentment of the youth, drawing on subcultural angst, along with the willingness to accept, if not engage in, mass acts of violence by what appeared to be a majority of the population. Il Manifesto argued that the localist fascism, both populist and maximalist, had nothing to do with true fascism, which in actuality inhered in the center-left. Meanwhile, Lotta Continua found a protagonist in the revolutionary proletariat of Reggio, insisting that the militant youth sought equality on par with other wealthier places in the north and the rest of the continent. The Situationist International largely agreed all the way over in France. At the same time, academics have worked to understand the revolt and its complexity and nuance. Paul Ginsburg calls the revolt a part of the epoch of collective action specific to the Mezzogiorno from 1969 to 1973. Others accord that the revolt marked something even more unique, with its localized elements ungeneralizable to other events, yet absolutely crucial to understanding them. Here, the revolt becomes lodged in a notion of territorial defense, territorial competition, and territorial identity, no longer a question of competition or conflict between classes, but of those dynamics situated within a spatial element of popular order and populist movements. Reggio in 1970 had only 165,000 residents. It was poor, dilapidated, but also incredibly beautiful with its own history, 
dialect, community, and way of life. In a sense, the political revolt stemmed from a collective sense of place and pride in the way of being, grounded in a kind of identification with the primordial village. In this sense, the revolt has been characterized as emanating from the piazzas, not just apolitical but anti-political, and meant to re-establish or vindicate the place as such rather than the political divisions within it. Poverty only crystallized the desperation of the visceral attachment to the place, and it helped that people in Reggio generally felt more loyalty to their home than to the central government located in Rome. For centuries, Calabrians had been smeared as politically immature or indifferent to political horse trading, and while Reginos may, indeed, have felt less interest in party politics, this also amplified the demonstrative engagement with forms of direct action, if not direct democracy. Indeed, one needs to take care in assessing the collective action of Reginos during 1970, as the far right immediately seized on the activity to declare themselves more democratic than the Republican system simply by focusing on local issues. Yet beyond the revolt against the center and despite the pronouncements of some extra-parliamentary leftists in accordance with the right-wing drift, the Reggio revolt's distinct lack of political articulation made it particularly attractive to fascists and the mafia. So, so here's the thing about, about Reggio in the late 40s. Italy had just gone through crazy-ass fascist regime for, for 20 years, right? So they had to create a new constitution basically from scratch, and they no longer had a king. So in, you know, 1947, when the republic emerges, they divide it spatially, you know, geographically uh, amongst regions, and nobody knew who would represent these regions. In some places like Calabria, you have different crime families representing different areas. So already in January 24th, 1950, workers around Reggio went on general strike to force the issue of Reggio as a state capital of Calabria over and against Catanzaro and Casenza, which were also being considered. As thousands gathered in a large manifestation, the primary speaker, a young student named Francesco Franco, insisted that students would abstain from class lessons, that administrators would resign, and extra legal action would be taken. So he's an important figure, this guy. Uh, he's, his nickname is Ciccio Franco. Can I ask you, you know, my, I, I don't have a ton of knowledge of, of post-World War II Italy, but I know just from reading Naples 44, it just sounded like it was a time, I'm assuming in those years too, and because, you know, Naples is in the South as well, that it was just a time of like a lot of black market action, contrabands, banditry, and things like that. I mean, is that kind of par for the course? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so Naples was like totally jacked. And Naples and Calabria represent two different regions with two different mafias, really. Uh, in Naples, there's the Camorra. And they're kind of like this group that initiated, in a sense, they're thought of by some as like one of the most original mafias because they originated in the prisons with these like revolutionaries who are all like in in a like secret traditions of freemasonry and stuff like that and they're on the one hand and they're trying to figure out what's going on in these prisons where you have like criminal networks that are like basically charging rent for space and stuff like that 
And so the merger, they basically integrate with the criminal underworld. And you have this wild, like, revolutionary criminal element with all these, like, bizarre Freemason-type rituals. So that's where the Kimura in Naples comes from. And they are, like, hardcore into, like, trafficking cigarettes especially. But all kinds of stuff. And then you also have the Calabrian mob, which, as you said, like, more like banditry. Like, Calabria is, like, way, way rural. It's all the way in the southern part of the boot. And Reggio's right at the tip of the boot. And so Calabria is like very agricultural. There are plantations. And so you get this like vertical integration of the, what, what they call the, the Calabrian mob is called the Indrangheta. And it basically means like big tough guys. And so just like the term mafia in Sicily is just kind of like cool dude. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, like guy who kind of gets along with it, you know? In Calabria, it's like, and Drangheta is like a dude who will probably fuck you up if you, if you try to look at him sideways, you know? And, you know, in, in the pre-fascist period, they're, they're, they have this, like, semi-connected relationship with the Camorra in Naples. And so they kind of develop some of those secret society aspects, but, but they're really their own thing with their own families mixing together kind of these these kind of rogue banditry elements with some more integrated landowner type of class and it just becomes like a a situation of becoming the law doing the favors because really northern italy doesn't give a crap about southern italy uh it's still kind of like a problem today but like southern italy it's called the mezzogiorno which means like the middle of the day for the intense heat that they get. So the Southern Italy is like represented by the North as like very hot and like the people there are looked down on kind of in a racist kind of way. And there's this whole like anti-imperialist analysis of the South actually having been kind of conquered by the North in a sense. The North is way industrial. The South is very poor and agricultural. You get a lot of Southerners moving up to the North in order to work in the factories. And they're looked down on because they're like the unskilled workers. And even the unions up in the North look down on the Southerners because these are the unskilled labor taking up the jobs of Milanese and Torinos, you know? So they just have a rough, rough time, Calabrians. So their mob families are also, you know, developed in this kind of relationship. Whereas in Naples, you're a little bit further north. There's a little bit more industry. And Naples is dirt, dirt poor, uh, especially compared to places like Milan or Venice. But, you know, comparatively, it's the north of the south, you know? (laughs) Yes. It's closer to Rome. There's like an older, you know, history, maybe more commerce, you know, commercial aristocracy. Yeah, port. Yeah, you're not just talking about, like, landowners and, like, people basically making their own law based on their relationships and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it is complicated. And, like, the collaborate crime families aren't necessarily all getting along, you know? So there's a big contestation about can Reggio become the capital? Should Catanzaro become the capital? As things start to normalize, splits formed between general agitators on the one hand and leftists on the other. This is in 1950. And between the governing parties on, on one hand and the opposition on the other. 
the kind of situation started to emerge in the 1950s where autonomous popular mobilizations moved out of pocket and the politicians are like, you know, what do we do with these rabble-rousers generally associated with populists and localists? A week or so later, a left-wing meeting called Between Region and Capital crystallizes these diverging groups by faulting the Christian Democrats for the agitation in the region, denouncing the politicians' efforts to center regional competition and, quote, divert the workers from the struggle for the achievement of class objectives. So there's like a left-wing class analysis that's mixing in with this highly local sense of Calabrians is kind of on their own in Italy. And it kind of just goes from there. Economic questions are persisting throughout the 1950s. You have what's called the planner state or planner capitalism where you have a lot of state money being sunk into airports and ports, points of production and infrastructure. This is a huge deal for the South because it's particularly underdeveloped, and marginalized communities are scrambling desperately to avoid further marginalization. Uh, in 1958, a meeting of some 4,000 people commenced to discuss these issues, with even the police noting, quote, the great mass that the committee itself foresees. The topics dealt with are deeply felt in the majority of the population, independent from the current political belonging. And so speaking of like the Calabrian mob, the Andrangheta, they had politicians on the payroll, no question. So in Italy, there's the, the Christian Democrats and the Communist Party. And the, the Communist Party is like the strongest party in the strongest Communist Party in all of Europe. And you also had the MSE, the Italian Social Movement, which is a fascist party, and the Socialist Party. So there's like a pretty split political landscape here. And the Indrangheta is just paying all of them. You know, it's like whatever it's most convenient. Here's your, you know, Communist Party guy. You know, he's on the payroll too, you know? True uniters, man. They can work with anyone. Yeah, exactly. I, and, and I'll get into that too. Um, so Reggio itself had a population growth of around 17.8%, which was close to Italy's 13.9%, but low compared to Casenza or Catanzaro. Yet Reggio's population stood at 165,822 residents, whereas Catanzaro had about half of that, and Casenza was just over 100,000. So Reggio has the pull of being, like, the biggest city, and during the development period of the, the big boom in the 50s, some scholars call what happened densification. Some call it over-urbanization. So you get a lot of crowded housing as more houses are being built. And the development rate is just through the roof. It's 65% Reggio, 100% in Catanzaro, and 165% in Casenza. So if you're talking about like how fast they're developing, Casenza and Catanzaro are outpacing Reggio. Yet the industrial sector remains small in all three capitals, leading to a real problem of the labor force. The economic activity rate, which is a metric for the extent of the total labor force, unemployed or employed either way, for the three cities was around 33% which is lower than the regional average of 40% and the national average of 44%. A lot of this is because there were a lot of little kids being born at this time. So you have a lot of little kids, you got a lot of unemployed people, and you got a lot of people earning money under the table, 
which I think that's probably a big part of why that economic metric is so low for these areas. I think for a lot, you got people working in the fields, underpaid farm workers, feudal style landlords, and just the presence of the Calabrian mob. Um, Sorry, I had nothing to talk about. Oh, no, I know, I know, I know. Um, No, I'm going a little fast, but like, it's important to note that the mob is not like a left wing force here like in Calabria, you know, like, yeah, I mean, have they ever been? <laughs> well, some people try to like glamorize or glorify like the mob as some kind of like, uh, and bandits, to be honest, is some kind of like a pre-political formation that speaks to the needs of the people at the time. And I think one thing that your show talks about a lot that's really valuable is like, it is true that organized crime totally comes out of poverty. So they fill a gap, but, like, they're not doing it right. <laughs> well, I mean, they fill a gap by, by preying on generally, you know, if we're talking about, we, we do a lot of stuff about, like, old school gangs in New York and things like that. And generally they start off by preying on their fellow immigrants and fellow countrymen. You know, it's not a, uh, it's not, there, there's nothing altruistic about it. It's very much not political. Um, I mean, do they get involved in politics sometimes? Yeah, but it's for their own benefit, you know? It's, uh, it, it, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I have issues with trying to classify them as some sort of political. I guess they, they come out of politics, right? Because like we talk about a lot, you know, it's generally created out of um, maybe, I don't even know if political situation is the right word for it, but generally, you know, there's tons of reasons for why this happened. Like the Vietnamese gang I'm talking about right now, they came out because they were refugees from the, uh, the Vietnam War. Right. And they had issues with the local Chinese population, and all that. So there are situations that create these guys. But I don't look at them as a political force at all. Right, right, right. So actually, and one funny thing is, you know, they're not left wing, but also the mob was like one of the big things about fascism under Mussolini is that they were going to conquer the mob. Mussolini wanted to be the only gang in town. You know, nothing outside of the state. So one thing that he was constantly talking about was, you know, he was going to take over the mob. And in fact, kind of the opposite thing happened. At least in the South, the fascist party secretary in Reggio was, quote, notoriously affiliated to the organized crime that still infects the province, according to... Oh, interesting. Yeah, according to mussolini's own studies yeah i mean basically the state becomes the mob essentially in these situations yeah you actually do you get like the state coming in and like we're gonna you know clean house and then they just get bound up in the exact same networks that are taking place they take their cut you know yeah 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 so so they didn't really like follow through here and if they tried they probably would have gotten beat because you know the calabrian mob was pretty pervasive here and extremely strong. Like, what else do you rely on? It's just going to become a war. Regio's prefect reported, quote, a vast network of underworld affiliates with, quote, a well-ordered system of protection that even reached into politics. So this is kind of like an important thing when you think about it, because there's an attempt that's still ongoing to act like different mafias, the Sicilian mob in particular, were just a way of doing things, a localized fashion, and that the idea of a hierarchy with, you know, families and bosses was like a big conspiracy theory. 
and that's like the opposite of what literally everybody who has tried to objectively deal with the mob has found. So construction, right? Construction is basically the biggest industry in the capitalist development of the 1950s. And this is really where the mob kind of stakes out a lot of its theater of economic development in the 1950s. According to John Dickey's Blood Brotherhood, have you read that? I haven't. Oh, it's really good. It's really good. It's about the Italian mafias. So according to John Dickey's Blood Brotherhood, quote, the South became a theater of cooperation between northern big industry and the mafias. For example, companies from the industrialized North were also dealing on friendly terms with the Indrangheta back in Calabria, where concrete proved even more lucrative than it was in Piedmont, which is, you know, where Turin is. In reality, the true prefect wasn't the functionary from the Christian Democrats who reported to Rome. He was the mob boss. He was the guy who was going to set everything up from construction firms and import-export companies. Right. It's interesting so, how that becomes like the, the Italian-American mob, too, was sort of, uh, you know, in the same thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it, I mean, the two were somewhat connected, the Sicilians uh, more than the Indrangheta, but they're also connected within like the context of economic production at the time. And in the post-war period, it was all about construction, building new buildings, building freeways, and, and that's kind of where they got into it. Also, when you're doing a lot of importing and exporting, I mean, that's the perfect way to smuggle stuff. Yep. It was a lot of smuggling. You have a really good episode where you talk about the cigarette smuggling that, that was going on in Italy. Actually, you have like two or three that get into that. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned that. I mean, with the Balkans and everything and free trade zones, I mean, that was it. I think that was focused on the 90s, but it's always been a thing, you know, avoiding those taxes, getting in booze, cigarettes and all that, even before narcotics and, and heroin and all that um yeah smuggling cigarettes smuggling vices with taxes attached to them uh to get out of paying those taxes is always a always a profitable move yeah and and italy you know in the mediterranean you've got turkey you've got north africa a lot of those kinds of access points you know provide pretty lucrative trade so from 1951 to 1971 the service sector was also taking off in italy increasing by 13 points, and the rate of increase in Catanzaro and Casenza was close to around 10 points, but the place where the trend was most pronounced was in Reggio, where the service side of the economy increased by 31 points. So in Reggio, again, you have a higher population, slower development, but also this huge inflating bureaucratic scene. So that becomes another class issue as well. You have these university kids who are going to be demanding administrative jobs after college. And so Reggio has like a little bit more of kind of an idealistic political scene with these students and these administrators. The state bureaucracy is inflated. The mafia is like profiting off of that. So it's another thing that separates Reggio from the other cities. Uh, and it's probably made possible by the fact that it had become a shared capital with those other two cities after the constitution had been drafted in 47. So on top of that, all three cities have really high youth. 
uh, as a per, uh, percentage of their population. They're all either 25% or higher. And so this adds to a social dilemma, right? It's like, you got these unemployed youth, you've got these youth who want these administrative jobs, who's going to get the more white collar positions and doesn't have to work at their uncle's construction firm or cement factory or whatever. And at the same time, uh, a lot of those fascist social laws that were passed under Mussolini are still in place. So you have like a really socially conservative situation with divorce being illegal, abortion, of course, being illegal. Adultery wasn't just illegal, but if, you're a, if you were a man in Italy and your wife committed adultery, if you killed her, you would get a lenient sentence as an honor killing. Jesus. Yeah. So this is, you know, a lot of people, a lot, scholars, like I, I was just talking to um, a scholar named Phil Edwards of Italian unrest from 67 to 82. And he was like, Italy was pretty retrograde. Italian society was pretty retrograde at the time. And it sounds like kind of like demeaning to say that, you know, it's like, that's, that's kind of like a, a rude thing to say. But yo, you like, no, it was conservative, blog, like... conservative Catholic, especially in the rural areas, you know, poor conservative Catholic areas. It was definitely, uh, definitely wasn't progressive. Yeah. And the mob is like there to enforce the patriarchy. And this is what the fascists, this is where they really kind of like start to get along with the, the mob, especially the younger generation of the fascists and the younger generation of the mafia, because they're seeing all this social change happening. And they're like we've got to stop this because the social change includes a bloated government bureaucracy that's going to take away business from the mob. And it includes like the socialization of the workforce with women coming into the situation. And it includes divorce. So all of these things are making the most patriarchal aspects of Southern society really angry. And again, like these are poor, poor, poor areas. Reggio was like 87th highest average income per resident. Catanzaro was even worse. Casenza was lower than that. So little more than half the national average in terms of income that people are pulling down in these cities. Uh, you have a lot of speculation on unoccupied homes that are being constructed. A lot of cramped quarters in the homes that already exist. A lot of poverty in the slums, in the periphery of the cities, and the sort of mafia politics on top of all of that. So, you know, the situation is very poor, is very isolated, and jobs started to shift overseas in the early 70s. A lot more resentment starts to, to gather steam against these bureaucrats from the state who are part of the economic shift towards neoliberalism and are really frustrating at the same time the patrimonial networks you know power relations that exist in the south so although the fascist party the mse the italian social movement didn't do very well in those three cities in the south and they were worse in reggio the younger generation of like fascist militants started to get a real presence, especially in Reggio. Because you have the fascist party on the one hand that's trying to play the electoral game. And then on the other hand, you have like Avangardia Nazionale, 
which is like the National Vanguard. There are these fascist militants who used to do like what they called punitive expeditions. You know, they would like go around the cities and like beat up people who look gay or communist and stuff like that. They would also do bombings and murders. So they were, they were really rough. And they started to get a foothold in Reggio, especially with a specific crime family. So the Ndrangheta really ran the show using politicians as veritable puppets, and everybody knew that. So that's why like, non-participation in the political scene was itself seen as partly a radical political act. And in the late 60s, the Ndrangheta began to consolidate from a tri-regional entity taking up all of Calabria into a single regional organization with one hierarchy. And the three families that fit into that hierarchy were headed by Don Antoni Macri, Mico Tripodo, and, sorry, I'm so bad with the Italian pronunciations, and Girolamo Momo Piromali. Don Antoni is sort of like the most famous boss who brokers the peace. He's kind of like this older big dude who's like kind of got a folk appeal and admired as a boss of bosses with a 900-page rap sheet from fixing prices, extortion, and loaning or selling construction equipment. So you get really popular with people if you like lean on some big plantation owners. You know what I mean? Yeah, so he's like he gets he gets his like team together and you know, he he he's definitely extorting small businesses, extorting small landowners, stuff like that. But he also gets enough power to, you know, impose on plantation owners who aren't treating people right, you know? But so he, the Andragheta at this time were, it was not like completely hierarchical. It wasn't, you know, the Camorra is a, a bunch of different competing clans. But here it seems like, you know, it was a pyramid structure and um, these guys were at the top and sort of, you know, completely hierarchical, like almost a unified front in a way, if that makes sense. It was more and more like that. It was like an accumulation process because partly because Don and Tony's charismatic personality was so good at bringing people together. And Don Miko's sort of similar. Like at one point, Don and Tony defrauds the Bank of Naples and he gets away with it. This is in 1967 because the bank refuses to press charges. That's wild. Like, it's a good move. That's <laughs> definitely a power move. Don Miko is sort of similar. He did counterfeit currency scams and armed robbery and also racketeering in the fruit markets and smuggling. They would set prices, you know. That was like a big part of what they did, you know. So they're like really like the economic and political, they're the economic managers of the area as well as the political powerhouses. But Don Miko's signature was escaping the police by pretending to be sick and then running away from low security clinics that they would send him. He did it like several times. <laughs> I love picturing that in my head. Just this like big fat guy running away at the doctor's <laughs> office. Yeah, I know. Like like at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he just like, yeah, busts yeah, out yeah. and runs off. <laughs> Don Miko is the guy who controls Reggio and his immediate subordinates included uh, the De Stefano brothers, Giorgio, Giovanni, and Paolo. These are the guys who break the mold a little bit from the image of the mafioso, like you're saying, like thuggish, shadowy figures, you know. 
and these guys went to university. Paolo and Giorgio did. And Paolo studied law and becomes interested in, like, idealism, you know, the wor world of ideas. Uh, they're in their 20s during the late 1960s and mingling with what's called the Reggio Bene, the, like, you know, aristocratic kind of class within Reggio. And the honorable figures of the upper crust. Among this class was the Marquis Fefe Zerbi, a man with a compelling interest in fascist organizations and the Rome-based Avangardia Nazionale overall. Through an emissary named Carmine Dominici, Zerbi helped Avangardia Nazionale gain contacts with discrete gentlemen of the Italian political and financial classes, while also funding the fascist paramilitary organization. So, so these... <laughs> this is where it gets really gnarly, right? Like, you've got this budding generation of, like, more educated, younger, kind of hipper, suit-and-tie-style mafiosi who are integrating with the Roman fascist networks. Yeah, I mean, they, they seem like uh, good partners to have, I would say, at this time. You know, it just seems like a natural progression for, um, you know, two competing groups of people who you know, use violence for their ends and, and have kind of the same social mores and viewpoints to, uh, I guess, team. It's, it seems profitable for both of them, you know? Like, it yeah. makes logical sense. I'm not it saying, like, oh, great, this is great, wonderful. No, I'm saying it like it makes, you know, it's yeah. like a logical, a logical progression from, from, for everything. Yeah, I don't think that all the crime bosses were stoked on this you know i think a lot of people were like the avant-garde nazionale they are like this weird obscure group do we really want to go back to like the fascist regime like what what stake do we have in this like we own we control calabria why do we need to like take on this new kind of thing this subversive undercurrent this could get us into trouble but not the de stefanos the de stefanos work through this aristocrat zerbi and his emissary, Dominici, to gain access to and support from Avangardia Nazionale and their leader, Stefano della Chiaia. So Stefano della Chiaia and Paolo de Stefano really hit it off. In an interview, della Chiaia noted that the Avangardia Nazionale's branch in Reggio was born spontaneously out of a call to build the movement out of Rome, quote, beyond an internal discipline that was absolutely voluntary, it was not imposed. Each region had its own autonomy, he explained. And then he continues, so in a strategy agreed in periodic meetings, each region implemented on a tactical level in an absolutely autonomous way. So basically, Delechiaia and Zerbi create this Avangardia Nazionale chapter in Reggio that has, according to his later statements, total autonomy from the Roman branch or the Roman center, but still is tied into the national network. And at this time, in 1970, what we're talking about when we're talking about Avangardia Nazionale's national network is the Black Prince Junio Valerio Borghese and his organization, the National Front. Basically, they were going to launch a coup in Italy in December of 1970. 
and there were a lot of bombings going on all over the place because they had this strategy that they were going to try to bomb areas of Italy, blame the left, get society to become enraged against the currently existing parliamentary system, and then overthrow it in a coup and institute something that the Americans would be okay with, which is a presidentialist system. Uh, so the government at the time was, was it left-leaning? Was it socialist? Or was it, you know, where, where, what kind of government did they have that they were trying to overthrow? It's really complicated. They, they call it block democracy because there was one party in power for the entire duration of the First Republic, uh, as it's called. So this party was the Christian Democrats, and they would always stay in power by making different coalitions with other parties except for the Communist Party. So they would stay in power, keep the Communist Party away, and broker coalitions with the Social Democratic Party, which is a very small party or the Liberal Party, or the Republican Party, or the Socialist Party, even. At this point, you have this guy in 19, at the end of 69 and in 70 named Mariano Rumor, who is sort of like in the center, if not maybe the center-left, some people might argue center-right, of the Christian Democratic Party. So at this point, you have a Christian Democratic Party that is somewhat left-leaning, trying to gain votes from socialists and trying to broker a coalition with the socialists in order to keep the Communist Party out of power. There are other times when the Christian Democrats just completely avoid any kind of contact or coalition with the socialists and just form their own block. But those often fall apart because they just don't have enough support for their agenda in Parliament. So, yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. The thing is, like, in the mid-60s, and there's this guy, right, Aldo Moro, who's, like, the head of the kind of left-wing branch of the Christian Democrats, who is constantly encouraging the party to make inroads uh, to do the opening with the left or later on the grand compromise with the Communist Party. And they, the fascists hate that. So it doesn't matter if it's just the Christian Democrats in power and there's no coalition or if there's a coalition with the left. The fact of the possibility of the coalition with the left is enough, you know, <laughs> that's it, that's enough. They want fascism back, you know, they want their Mussolini guy, you know, they, they, and, and Junio Valerio Borghese actually fought in World War II. He was like a miniature submarine commander. And then during the partisan war of the resistance, he was on the side of the fascists and the Nazis and was his group, his unit, almost certainly committed war crimes against civilians during that period of 43 to 45. I mean, they had one of the most feared torturers of the entire period of the Italian Civil War. And that's saying something because you had Nazis, you know, you, yeah. had, <laughs> you had the SS roaming around the Italian countryside committing unspeakable atrocities and yet Valerio Borghese his his torture is like seen as one of the worst so well that nickname too that you you know the black prince really doesn't lend itself to uh to you know it, it lends itself to to that sort of reputation it's not a, it's not a nickname you get if you're you know doing good things yeah well literally he was a, a part of the nobility you know, some people argue he's a prince. 
Some people argue he wasn't, but he was definitely a part of the old Italian nobility. And black was the color, like the black shirts and stuff like that. So the, the nickname itself actually is a qualifier of his political position in a sense. Yeah, uh, okay, it's so it's, it's more it's more literal <laughs> than, yeah, I was thinking maybe like no, dark, the dark prince, have, you know, so. No, it wrong was. that one, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, no, you're absolutely right. It is like a terrifying nickname. And it all part of the terrifying fact of it is the fact that it was like his like honest to God station. <laughs> yeah, so he's got this thing called the National Front, and they're trying to cobble together all these far right paramilitary groups like the Avangardia Nazionale and another group called the Ordine Nuovo. And this is a quote from Stefano Della Chiaia, whose nickname is alternately shorty or crappy. <laughs> so he did not luck out on the nickname front. Like literally, his, one of his nicknames is like the crud that accumulates in your eyes. Yeah, what is that called? What is not... that called? I don't know what it's called, but it's not a good nickname to have. Like I... These are not... The Italian-Americans got much better at, at nicknames, I think, <laughs> than, than their, their paisans who stayed home. Yeah, well, I mean, the Black Prince is great, but crappy della Chiaia, you know, that's not as good. So, so della Chiaia would later say, Commander Borghese did not choose Reggio Calabria as a nodal point, going on to say, at the time there was a controversy over the steel center, and the division in Rome, so the commander came to Reggio when there uh, was already a ferment of protest in the city. He wanted to explain to the people of Reggio what the truth was that was hidden behind the promises made. Of course, that's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Uh, in that initial moment, it only had a political role. So he kind of plays down Borghese's role in Calabria, but the Black Prince's attempted event on the 25th of October coincided conveniently with another event that was taking place the following morning in the countryside. The fascists didn't choose Reggio as their operational base, but the political situation drew the attention of Borghese, who hoped to foment more rage in the lead-up to his potential coup. The Marquis Fefe Zerbi helped to fund these efforts, and in 1969... The following morning from Borghese's talk on the 25th of October, or speech or whatever, the Andrangheta bosses converged at Monte Alto with 130 of their underlings, all sitting in a circle in a clearing in the woods. <laughs> Amazing. Trying to hash... <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is it with, with organized crime? And in, in, I guess the, what was the big meeting in the U.S. in like upstate New York? They just loved having these giant meetings with everyone around trying to, trying to figure things out. This is just so stupid. And they're, like, sitting around in a circle in the woods. It, like, this, the, the combination of murderers and, like, the pastoral scene is it's very weird. So they're trying to hash out a collective agreement, but things were going sideways. The Borghese meeting was banned by the cops, leading to riots by fascists in Reggio. Then the Maldalto meeting was invaded by the cops, and 72 participants were rounded up to face trial. To make things interesting, it's said that among the participants who escaped arrest was De La Chiaia himself, along with a certain fascist who went by the name the Black Prince. Something intriguing was going on with the politics of the region, as the mob and the fascist underground were converging into something new. It was later said 
by a former member of Avangardia Nazionale, Vincenzo Vinciguera, that the Indrangheta had pledged support for the Borghese coup. So it's kind of crazy. Like, the whole story is, like, really jacked. Apparently these cops were, like, wandering around in the woods and just, like, happened upon a bunch of cars. They're just, like, driving around Montalto, and they, they find these cars, and they're like, oh, I wonder what that's about. And so they get out, they find all these mob bosses, and they just, like, raid. And there's all these guns, but nobody gets hit with any shots. There's gunfire, but nobody's injured. And when the, when the mafiosi are arraigned in front of court, they all say that they were out there picking mushrooms. So that's, that's the story of one of the biggest cases of the Indrangheta, and that, that's continuing into 1970. Did the mushrooms thing work? Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of them got off with really light sentences. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, you know, old people like to collect mushrooms. It's like... Totally normal thing for more than a hundred Indrangheta-connected people to be out doing in the forest together. Yeah. I always hang out with my bros in the forest collecting mushrooms and definitely not talking about crimes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not knocking it. It just doesn't seem like the best excuse that you can come up with. But sure, whatever works. And you got to wonder, like, when did they come up with that? Did they come up with that before the, the sting or whatever? When they were, before the arrest, were they like, all right, if they catch us. <laughs> so you can't really say that the revolt that happened the following year in 1970 was a product of this or that political te tendency or political contestation. It was more about the geography of economic development or lack thereof and the unfulfilled promise extended to Calabrians that their evacuation from the rural agricultural sector would bring them economic betterment and respect in the eyes of their Italian peers. Even more than that, the revolt was a desperate scramble to keep the much-needed revenues flowing to the general administration based on the status of being the capital in Reggio. But you, you'd have to be blind to think that the revolt didn't get more than a little support from the honored society, the Andrangheta, and its fascist allies. So the revolt itself is preceded in April when bombs tear up the headquarters of the Christian Democrats and the Liberal Party. More bombs explode in the church and department store. And the last and among the largest was a bomb on the night of December 7th that exploded at police headquarters and destroyed the atrium, injuring the guard on duty. This is planted almost certainly by two fascists with Avangardia Nazionale, Aldo Pardo and Giuseppe Scirinzi. The attack was initially blamed on anarchists and Maoists by the press, of course, but it was carried out by fascists associated with these different groups accumulated under the National Front. And blaming it on the left really fit the pattern of the so-called strategy of tension through which the way for a coup would be paved by false flag terror attacks that created an air of disorder and chaos. Indeed, the strategy had already been implemented in Greece during the colonel's coup in 1967, and the culprits Skirinzi and Pardo had actually gone to Greece with a host of other fascists to wine and dine and rub elbows with the new dictatorship in the spring of 1968. 
Unfortunately for them, the strategy didn't pan out because the fascists behind the incident were actually arrested, and the public that was meant to be furious with the left was instead really less than amused by the entire situation. So the whole strategy is playing out in Reggio in much the same way as it's playing out in Milan and in Rome. So intriguingly, one of the Avangardia Nazionale bombers, Scarinzi, had also been infiltrating the anarchist group the 27th of March, which was the same organization that had broken away from the anarchist federation with the support and subterfuge of Avangardia Nazionale militant and infiltrator Mario Merlino in Rome. Merlino had also been on the 1968 trip to Greece. So it's further alleged that the bombs that went off in Rome on the night of the Piazza Fontana massacre, December 12, 1969, were also planted by Calabrians, and Scarinzi happened to be in town that day. So it really looks like Scarinzi was part of this transnational network in Avangardia Nazionale and Ordine Nuovo that was infiltrating the left, planting bombs, trying to blame the left for those bombs in order to stage a coup. It's just fascinating how the Reggio revolt is preceded by these bombings and fascist intrigue and infiltration in connection with a grand scheme to overthrow the republic. But that's not necessarily what starts the actual revolt. The actual revolt is caused by kind of complete incompetence of the Christian Democrats. I, th I think it was Rumor who's in power and he just basically writes out this missive like, oh, by the way, we're going to move the capital of Calabria to Catanzaro and just tries to slip it under the noses of everybody and just quietly have that situation proceed. What was the reasoning for that? You know, I don't even know. It could have been, it, it, honestly, it could have been like the different power networks in Catanzaro. It could have been the fact that Catanzaro is growing faster, you know, they're developing faster. It's not as far out. Like Reggio is all the way at the tip of the boot. You know what I'm saying? So Catanzaro is like more centralized location. They had this curse of having to deal with this tri-capital situation. They had inherited that from like 1950. So at some point they had to make a move. It's just like the way they did it and the time that they did it, it was just like it wasn't going to go well. <laughs> was not going to go well. So the main event starts on July 14th. As I noted in the introduction, you have the general strike. You have 500 people marching down the Corso Garibaldi, the main thoroughfare of the city. They stop at the Piazza Italia and hear speeches from Pietro Battaglia, the mayor of Reggio, and a politician of the fascist Italian social movement named Fortunato Aloy. But this was hardly the peak. A thousand activists occupy the train station, another hundred take over the airport, there's clashes with cops, dozens of people are wounded. And that starts the ball rolling, right? They just, people take over the roads, they take over the ports, all access to the city is barricaded. The communists and the socialists bow out at this point. They're like, 
this is some actually pretty scary business, which is wild because they are doing general strikes all over the city, all over the country in 1969, all the way through 1974. Like they're pretty heavily involved in some pretty major militant activity, especially the communists, although they're reformists and they're not like as revolutionary as a lot of people on the left wanted them to be. They would have had a really good time on Twitter, I'm sure. But one regional deputy from the Socialist Party, Gaetano Chinjari, would later recall, with respect to the situation, the National Socialist Party... <laughs> that sounds bad. With respect to the situation, the Socialist Party made the grave mistake of considering the revolt indiscriminately subversive, that the direction of motion after its first phase was such that cannot be doubted. But it was not taken into account that the popular mass of each party convinced of the objective of the protest and increasingly exasperated by that repeated accusation, ended up joining in the direction desired by the leaders. So, like, the socialists and the communists bow out and then later kind of regret it. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised they would bow out. It kind of seems like it's, it's tailor-made now for them to rise up and take control. It seems, just seems like a mistake. Seems yeah. like a pretty obvious mistake, but uh, you know, what do I know? I know, and it's part of the the whole terrain of anti-fascism of whether you disassociate or you try to gain hegemony within like a field, right? And so this mm -hmm. this is like a popular mass insurrection in Reggio, um, with a lot of localist tendencies, you know, a lot of far right tendencies, and so the left has to make a decision: like, do we try to stay active in this and fight for hegemony or do we just say no more of this and the thing the fact is that the socialists and the communists were institutional parties they couldn't be part of like a big subversive movement necessarily especially if it's outside of their wheelhouse you know if it's not coming out of the factories if it's just coming out of this pretty reactionary kind of southern area and that, that's probably the other point is that they probably just thought you know this is a calabrian thing and Calabria doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't need to fight for Calabria. And then they become the targets. <laughs> so their, their headquarters get attacked by the angry mob. And the workers syndicate that opposed the general strike also gets attacked. But the protests largely are relatively peaceful. There's 400 engaging in fights with police in the morning, followed by 1,000 in the afternoon. But once evening falls, there's this 46-year-old railway man named Bruno Labate who's found badly wounded lying in a street in the city center, and he dies on the way to the hospital. It's not really clear how he died. Like, he could have been hit by a rock from other protesters. He, there was fighting amongst the protesters, even though the communists and the socialists bowed out. There were still just individuals who didn't want the fascists there. There were individuals who the fascists didn't want there. So there was a lot of fighting inside of the protest. And of course, the cops are just brutal. And there are carabinieri there who are like the machine gun toting, military police. So the following day, 2,000 demonstrators hit the streets with 200 moving on to occupy the airport, 200 occupying parking lot of police headquarters. According to one scholar's account, quote, during this revolt, the Reggio protesters made substantial use of pre-industrial repertoires of popular justice, such as burning or hanging effigies and staging highly theatrical mock funerals. So it's getting there. 
you know? <laughs> yeah, it's building. <laughs> it's really the mock getting funerals, The mock funerals are usually, a, or, and the effigies hanging, it's usually like a, you know, it's a sign. Things are going to get them. They're, they're enraged. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds of people are getting arrested, hundreds more injured by the sort of ham-fisted cops. The whole town is suddenly in revolt. Police are clashing with the people. The people are clashing with one another. Young members of the Andrangheta are getting into the mix. One Pentito, this is sort of like a confessant, one guy who ends up with the mob and ends up confessing his sins. He says, uh, on the occasion of the Reggio events, it happens that young people belonging to Andrangheta families of opposing political tendencies clashed with each other. To avoid such incidents, it was decided not to participate directly in street demonstrations. So oh, interesting. I know. So you have, you, you have this kind of situation with Crappy de la Chiaia, who uh, is plugging fascism into the Indrangheta, but you also have members of the Indrangheta, members of people's immediate families and stuff, who might be Communist Party, who might be socialists, who might be syndicalists and so forth. And they're getting into fights in the streets with like their fascist family members. <laughs> You know, so it's a total mess. The insurrectionaries at the barricades threw rocks mostly, but Molotovs are sure to follow. At a certain point, a sign goes up that's visible as one passes the barricades that says the hour of the rocks has passed. The hour of the gun has come. So, good sign. Wow, that's a good one. I know. I know. I want to make a sign like that just randomly. Just put it in downtown Portland. <laughs> yeah, Portland doesn't need that. Be a little... <laughs> People be like a little late for that. So on the 18th of July, 4,000 people joined the procession of the murdered Labate. Graffiti on billboards and walls read, police are the same as the SS, and, quote, someone is murdering, someone murders. Talking about the cops. The funeral mostly passed calmly, but afterwards hundreds of people broke off and attacked the police headquarters, torching cars and setting fire to some offices. So there's this big riot that's taking place on the 18th of July. The struggle continued into the following days with 6,000 people marching through the city, accompanied by leading Christian Democrats to oppose the police repression. The general strike is called off, though, on the 22nd to give people time to strategize and negotiate. But that afternoon, a terrible shock swept across Italy when the nearby Arrow of the South train derailed, killing seven people. In a matter of weeks, the revolt had escalated from sticks and stones to Molotovs to gunplay, and now it seemed possibly TNT. So, the era of the South detonates the afternoon after the general strike is called off. And people are like, well, what happened here? Okay, so authorities are immediately denying that the derailing of the arrow of the South over the Joya Tauro section of the tracks had anything to do with the politics of the situation. Some said it was maybe workers who had left out dynamite or insufficiently laid the tracks, but Avangardia Nazionale activists Giacomo Lauro and Carmine Dominici, who is close to Marquis Zerbi, have testified that one of their cellmates confessed to the evil deed in 1979. According to Domenici, the action was coordinated by a group of fascists under the title Action Committee for Capital Reggio in connection to what they called the Boya 
Chimola, which loosely translates as the executioner who gives up. So Boya Chimola was a slogan that was used by Mussolini during the Italian Social Republic and was used by Ciccio Franco, their big leader, since the 50s, repeatedly. Like, he always used this. He called himself this, and then, he, you know, it was so repeated that the Reggio Revolt came to be known as the Revolt of Boya Cimola, so, which is openly associated with the fascists. So Lauro, who's aside from being in Avangardia Nazionale, also a member of the Indrangheta, explained the following to a public prosecutor. I met Vito Silverini in the years 1969 to 1970 because he had come to ask for work at the Lauro Company, which at the time managed funeral services, ambulances, and flowers during the Reggio Calabria riots. He was arrested for having actively participated in the revolt and remained in prison for about three or four months. Silverini is a fascist of proven faith, even though he was illiterate. After being released from prison, he worked at my company as a general worker and ate at my house almost every day because he lived alone. At that time, he frequented the Action Committee for Reggio Capital and therefore frequented all the members of the group, including Renato Maduri, Tino Aloy, Angelo Calafiori, Ciccio Franco, and others. Vincenzo Caraccioli, from Gallico Marina, the owner of a motorbike with which he used to commit thefts in shops and tobacconists, also frequented this circle. In 1979, he was arrested, I don't remember why, and he remained in prison for two or three years before obtaining semi-liberty, a benefit which he obtained because we issued him a certificate according to which he was an employee of our company. I too was in prison in 1979, for the famous theft of the savings bank and during the period of common detention, which lasted over two years. We shared the cell. During this period, I asked him if he had economic problems since he lived on a meager pension and he replied that he had a small nest egg deposited with the Banca Nazionale del Lavoro, the result of some, quote, work he had performed in the past, in particular for having placed a bomb on the tracks along the Banyara gioia tauro section, bringing about the derailment of a train coming from Sicily, which caused the death of seven to eight people. He told me that the, he had brought the bomb with Vincenzo Caracciolo on the latter's motorbike, and that he himself had made the bomb, made of sticks of dynamite ignited by a fuse. Silverini was familiar with the preparation of explosive devices because, as he himself had told me, he had served in the army with the engineers in Bolzano. He told me that he was hiding near the place where he had placed the bomb to see the effects of the bomb and that he had seen police chief Santillo, who then came to the place shouting angrily. He further told me that the bomb had caused the destruction of about 70 meters of railway line and that the task had been conferred on him by the action committee. I got the impression that Renato Maduri had been physically giving the money to Silverini, with whom, both before and after this episode, he maintained very close relations. Silverini also told me about another attack on the power line pylon located at Santa Trada di Silla. This attack was also carried out together with Caracciolo 
but this time it failed because Silverini himself told me that he had made a mistake in the charge, even if the pylon had tilted. This attack was carried out on behalf of the Action Committee. Silverini died in prison in 1987 from cardiac ischemia. I don't know. Uh, Silverini kept the explosive material, detonators, and fuses near his home, buried in the common courtyard, so much so that in 1985, brushwoods were burned along the road, which caused the explosion of the hidden explosive material and the collapse of a wall. So, really looks like uh, this went all the way up to Ciccio Franco. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much a confession of everything, it sounds like. Yeah. So if this is true, and it's corroborated by Carmine Domenici, then the Committee for Agitation, the the Reggio Radical Populist Insurrectionary Committee, is responsible for derailing this train, probably to keep up or even heighten the tensions, even as things are starting to cool down and the general strike is being called off. So Carmine Domenici, speaking of him, who had set up things between Marquis Zerbi and Avangardia Nazionale, told a similar tale. He says, quote, With regards to the Gioia Tauro disaster of July 22, 1970, I can confirm that it was not a mistake by the railway workers, but an attack attributable to the environment of the executioner who gives up. That evening we were in Reggio Calabria, and they arrived from the area by Gioia Tauro, Vito Silverini, so the same guy, called Ciccio the Blonde, and Giuseppe Scarcella, who had political meetings as the reason for their presence in that area. There were persistent rumors in the milieu about their co-responsibility in the episode. Both are now deceased. I can also say this, and that is that in 1979, I was detained in Reggio Calabria in cell 10 together with Giacomo, Lauro, Silverini, and two other Calabrians, both of whom were later killed for common crime. We were in prison together for about 11 months. Silverini, at a certain moment, told us that it was he who carried out the attack on Gioia Tauro. In a context in which I spoke to him about my political motivations, and he replied that he too was partly referring to politics, and that the movement of the executioner who gives up, on whose behalf he made the attack. So I kind of garbled that last sentence a little bit, and a lot of this is just translation from an Italian book about the Reggio Revolt. So you have to bear with me, but it's pretty damning to have those two guys openly talking about the fact that it was a fascist who caused the death of like seven people on a innocent people on a train is it widely accepted in italy that they were behind it at this point with you know all these confessions and everything nothing uh, is widely accepted in italy <laughs> about any of this any of this it's it's a it's definitely not seen as a conspiracy theory in italy it's i think it's probably the most widely i guess the most widely held scenario but it's a difficult subject to really touch on in Italy just because a lot of people are still alive and people could be implicated. It is just a sensitive subject. You're talking about innocent people being killed. And also when you're talking about the National Front and, and Valerio Borghese, you have a lot of members of 
the main political part, the Christian Democrats, implicated in the higher levels of, of that conspiracy, of that coup attempt. And so it's complicated and it's a very rough subject. But according to Delakia, the group wasn't involved in the bombing, but he didn't, <laughs> of course he says that, but he didn't hesitate to note that he was deeply involved in the revolt itself. And when listing his comrades in Reggio, he named the infiltrator and bombers, Gerinzi, the Marquis Zerbi, and even Ciccio Franco himself. He says, We were present in Calabria with a certain force. So when the riots broke out, we felt the story of Reggio Calabria as ours. Also, because for us, the story of Reggio Calabria was the story of the whole of Calabria, of the whole South. As we saw it, the people of Reggio Calabria at that moment protested not only for Reggio, but also for a series of past events, but above all, for having always been kept on the sidelines of the social life of the country. So he's kind of right about that, but it's also like, what are the fascists doing, you know, for, for, for Calabrians, you know, nothing. But again, the revolt itself was just so furious against the status quo that you had these extra parliamentary groups that were actually far more able to capture the sentiment than the actual parties, the official parties of the time. So that's where we'll end episode one of this two-part piece on the Reggio Revolt. An ongoing populist riot could be germinating a right-wing insurrectionary fervor. An alleged train bombing in the area has the country beside itself with anxiety and anguish. But this is just the beginning. Stay tuned for more, including the mysterious deaths of left-wing activists on their way from Reggio to Brome, amid the worsening political crisis cascading into what would become the first Indrangheta War. Thanks so much to Danny Gold, our amazing guest host for this double episode. If you can't find him in Ukraine, where he's currently reporting from, you can locate him on Twitter at DGIsSerious or catch his podcast, Underworld Pod, which he co-hosts with another great journo, Sean Williams, at underworldpod.com and throw them a couple of bucks at their Patreon, patreon.com dash theunderworldpodcast. And while you're at it, if you can, like and subscribe to this podcast, Years of Lead Pod. Give us a five-star rating if you can. The podcast is probably available at your preferred podcast venue, and there's a Patreon where you can find bonus episodes with some deep background on Italy's period of political violence from 1967 to 1982, known colloquially as the Years of Lead. Thanks, and we'll see you next time for the concluding episode of the Reggio Revolt. Bye.